Please be seated for our Bible readings. The reading is taken from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. It can be found on page 803 in the Old Testament section of the Church Bible. In this reading, we read of Ezekiel's second vision, of the abominations to God happening in the temple. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. I looked, and there was a figure that looked like a human being, below what appeared to be its loins. It was fire, and above the loins, it was like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming amber. It stretched out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head, and the spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, to the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I had seen in the valley. Then God said to me, O mortal, lift up your eyes now in the direction of the north. So I lifted my eyes towards the north, and there, north of the altar gate, in the entrance, was this image of jealousy. He said to me, Mortal, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary? Yet you will see still greater abominations. And he brought me to the entrance of the court. I looked, and there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Mortal, dig through the wall. And when I dug through the wall, there was an entrance. He said to me, Go in and see the vile abominations that they are coming here. So I went in and looked. They're portrayed on the wall all around were all kinds of creeping things and loathsome animals and all the idols of the house of Israel. Before them stood 70 of the elders of the house of Israel 
with Jazaniah, son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the fragrant cloud of incense was ascending. Then he said to me, Mortal, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of images? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He said also to me, You will see still greater abominations that they are committing. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. Women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O mortal? You will see greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. There, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about twenty-five men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east, prostrating themselves to the sun towards the east. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O mortal? Is it not bad enough that the house of Judah commits the abominations done here? Must they fill the land with violence and provoke my anger still further? See, they are putting the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my hearing with a loud voice, I will not listen to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. The gospel reading is taken from Matthew, chapter 6, beginning at verse 19. It can be found on page 6 in the New Testament section of the Church Bible. In this reading... Jesus reveals what we treasure and value most is where our heart will be focused. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves Treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes, and where thieves 
do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Thank you, Gloria. Please do be seated just before we pray together. A reminder, hopefully you brought your sheets back with you and you can now all get them out as we look at them. I'm sure you've all remembered them, haven't you? Good, thank you. If you haven't got one because you weren't here last week, there's one on the, on the table for you. We're, we're in week two of a six-week series on the book of Ezekiel, and I produced this, this sheet because Ezekiel is one of the least preached books in the Bible. You will understand that um, if you maybe have read part of that reading this morning. Who's reading next week? Nobody knows who's reading next week. Next, next week is a little incentive, is the least preached chapter in the whole of the Bible. So maybe if you want to read Ezekiel 16, you will then understand why and feel sorry for the person who's got to read it next week. Anyway, shall we pray together? So Lord, as Ezekiel said, anoint these lips with the seal of your spirit, that my mouth would speak wisdom and the meditation of my heart bring understanding that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning to awaken our hearts, expand our minds, and shape our identity in you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you want to follow, follow the text, then it's on page 803. If you want to follow it on the sheet, there's a very helpful, I think, diagram of it on the back of the sheet as to what's happening in this passage. The Ring of Power is the central plot device in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy. In the words of Tim Keller, the purpose of the ring is to corrupt anyone who tries to use it, however good their intentions. What the ring does is to take your heart's fondest desires and magnifies them to idolatrous proportions. It makes them willing to do anything to achieve them. It turns, turns the good thing into an absolute that overturns every allegiance of value. It means the wearer of the ring becomes increasingly enslaved and addicted to it. We must have it and it drives us to break the rules we once honoured to harm others and even ourselves in order to get it. In effect, the ring is an idol. A spiritual addiction, something we cannot live without that leads to terrible evil in Tolkien's novel, in life today, and in the time of Ezekiel and all the Old Testament prophets. And we may think the book of Ezekiel with his kind of weird visions and his puzzling images and strange symbolic stunts, we may think that that may, would not be out of place in Tolkien's trilogy. Yet... We find it in the Bible, the Word of God. And all Scripture is the breath of God. And like the Tolkien trilogy, Ezekiel's vision this morning reveals the devastation caused by the ring of power. The ring of power of idolatry in all of our lives. 
Today we're reading Ezekiel's second vision that he received while living in exile in Babylon. From the dates that we got right at the beginning, we know it happened 14 months after his first vision that we looked at last week. And in this vision, Ezekiel's in his house, in exile, with some of the elders. When all of a sudden he describes seeing this fiery bright image of a human who kind of picks him up by the locks of his head and lifts him up, if you like, halfway between earth and heaven, if you like, in the sky, and transports Ezekiel to view what is going on at that precise time in the temple in Jerusalem. And so as we survey the scene, imagine with me that you're about to take a tour of a famous place in this world. And as part of this tour, what you're going to do is you're going to have a guide who's going to lead you around all the key sites. Well, imagine Ezekiel's vision similarly. He too has a tour guide who's going to lead him to all the key sites, if you like. The only difference is his tour guide is God, Yahweh. And on this tour, Ezekiel is going to make four stops at four different sites of what's going on in the temple. Each of them, if you like, is an escalating snapshot of idolatrous worship, which we, need, which, we view, which we read that God views as abominations. And so on the first stop on this tour, we're somewhere near the northern entrance to the temple. And Ezekiel encounters what is called the image of jealousy. If you like, the location and the description are vague, but the intention is clear, isn't it? At the northern entrance to the temple is this alien deity that the Israelites have built, this idol, if you like, challenging God's sovereignty by invading his sacred space. Almost to the extent that as they would be walking into the temple complex, almost as if you could imagine it walking down the path to church, there's this big idolatrous idol there. If this isn't bad enough, we read verses to come. Did you hear God's words, or mortal, have you seen? Or, or mortal, did you see this? And then God's repeating refrain, you will see still greater abominations. And so we come to the second stop on the tour. Where, if you like, Ezekiel is guided to the entrance of the court. What we could say that was is a side chapel. So we could say that Ezekiel is guided just over to this chapel over here. And there he finds, if you like, a hole in the wall. And God tells him to dig through the hole to survey what is going on. And the scene which Ezekiel then beholds this time is of 70 of Israel's leaders undertaking idol worship but what they're doing is they're they're doing it in secret so they're going into the to the very temple perhaps pretending to go and worship God but what they're then doing is they're going off into a side chapel and they're carrying out some idolatrous practice and God then presses pause on the tour and he says just imagine what is happening if you like here on the tour Because it's here on the tour that we discover how 
the ring of power, if you like. The ring of power of idolatry has this ability to blindside all of us. You see, if you notice from the text in, in verse 12, if you're following it, notice how the leaders involved there have become deluded into thinking that the reason for their present difficulties are either because God no longer exists or because God, if you like, has left them or somehow God is limited in his power that he's not protecting them where the only reason that we can find for the Israelites' difficulty is precisely because they've entered into this adulterous relationship with idols. You see, whoever we are, idols create blind spots, don't they? It's why often the people who know us best are the best ones to ask, what or who are my idols? And so the tour guide says it's time to carry on on this tour. Maybe the tour is running a bit later than expected. And so at the next stop, he says, we can only stop briefly, but you will see there still greater abominations. And so we arrive, if you like, in the main forecourt in the front of the temple, clearly in public for all to see. And what we find there this time is a group of women mourning, if you like. If you don't know what Tammuz is, Tammuz is a Babylonian deity who kind of dies and then comes back to life later in year, the year. And it's just the period of, in the time of the year when she dies. Still, though, the, this isn't the end of the tour. As God announces hauntingly one more time, you will see still greater abominations. What that is, we see in the fourth and final stop as Ezekiel arrives at the inner court of the house of the Lord, the entrance to the holy place. If you don't know what that means, it means the part of the temple reserved only for priests. And there to his horror, Ezekiel discovers his fellow priests engaged in, if you like, sun worship, turning their backs on God. And then if this tour hasn't been devastating enough, God then reveals to Ezekiel the scale of the treachery. If you like, how bad the situation has become. Of how great the grip of the ring of power of idolatry has on the nation. And he says, doesn't he, in verse 17, look, it's just everywhere you look. It's not just in the temple, it's on the street corners, in the squares, up on the hills as well. And so maybe we come to question, is there any surprise that God will not act against this? It's a miracle. His patience has lasted this long. Where we finished in our reading this morning isn't the end of Ezekiel's vision. It actually carries on for three further chapters to the end of chapter 11. But what Ezekiel's second vision, if you like, reveals is a mere snapshot, if you like, a page in the Bible, if you like, that when we survey the whole biblical landscape of how the, if you like, almost like the central principle of this book is the rejection of idolatry. 
You know, we could, we could spend the next three hours just looking at the pages of the Bible, just doing this, but time doesn't allow a detailed sweep. So here are just, if you like, four brief encounters. Four statements, if you like, from different pages of this book, from beginning to end, of humanity being warned concerning idolatry. Adam and Eve wanting to be God. The very first commandment as Moses is on Mount Sinai when God says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shouldn't make yourself an idol. You should not bow down to them or worship them. Or the pages of the prophets giving idolatry as the number one reason for Israel's exile. Or we may prefer the directness of John in his letter. Keep yourselves from idols. But idolatry is deeper, isn't it? It's deeper and wider than the worship of false gods. You see, anything can be an idol, can't it? Anything. Even good things can become idols, if you like. It's when a good thing does become a God thing, an alternative God, a counterfeit God. It's anything, isn't it? An idol is anything more important to us than God. Anything that absorbs our heart and imagination more than God. Anything we seek to give, only what God can give. And if we were to read all the pages of the Bible, what we would see is that the very epicenter of idolatry is the heart. What did Jesus say in that gospel reading? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That Jesus is saying that what we value and love most is where your heart will be found. Our time, attention, actions and energy will be focused on whatever we value above all else. It's why the heart is so precious in the Bible. It's why the heart is so central in the Bible. The Bible describes it as the womb of character. It's this place, isn't it, where qualities worth having in our lives are first formed. As Charles Swindle writes, deep down, the heart is where hope is born. It's where decisions are made. It's where commitment is strengthened. It's where truth is stored, where character is formed. And it's our inner person, isn't it? It's precious. And because it's precious, it's also a target that we need get reminded in Scripture to guard it. What did Solomon say? Listen, my child, and be wise. And keep your heart on the right path, or keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Why? Because what we also know is that the Bible teaches us that our hearts are devious. As someone once said, the human heart is an idle factory. Your heart and my heart will repeatedly encounter this ring of power. This ring of power of idolatry and succumb. Wasn't it Nietzsche who said there are more idols in this world than there are realities? whether it be from the, if you like, the never-ending conveyor belt of idols that we just get churned out, don't they, before our eyes. A bit like what used to come on on Bruce Forsyth's Generation game. And they just come along, don't they? 
Maybe one or more of the big three of fame, fortune or pleasure or other ones that get thrust upon us to what they might then reveal about the deeper idols in all of our lives of influence and control, approval and appreciation. You see, the Bible is, is pretty clear on how idols can control our hearts because we love them, we trust them, we obey them. That was Israel's problem. As Ezekiel would say repeatedly later in chapter 14, they corrupt the heart, don't they? They get into and they take hold of us. They, if you like, cause our hearts to be sick. And you can't remove an idol from your life. You can't. Because if we try to uproot them, they grow back, don't they? But they can be supplanted. They can be replaced. What replaces idols in all of our lives is a living encounter with God. See, I said it earlier that Ezekiel's second vision, it goes on for a further three chapters. And in chapter 10 and chapter 11, it concludes with, if you like, the glory of the Lord, if you like, the presence of God, the power of God, the protection of God, quite frankly, just leaving the temple. He just walks out the door. And at the end of that vision, despite the coming judgment that will happen to Israel, Ezekiel records how God will not only not forget them when they go into exile, he'll still be with them in Babylon. But also, Ezekiel foresees this future time when God will restore the Israelites to their own land, reenacting his covenant promises. And the words that he uses to describe that, he says, I will give them a new heart. And I'll put a new spirit within them. And I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. So that they may follow my statutes and keep my ordinances and obey them. They shall be my people and I will be their God. You see, like with, if you like, heart, the incredible things that we can do today, like with heart transplant surgery, Israel's heart of stone needed to be removed and replaced with a heart of flesh. And while eight centuries later, some of those surface idols may have changed, the deeper idols they reveal in all of our lives have not. Because idolatry is just as prevalent today as it was eight centuries ago. So I wonder, as we close, what might the Holy Spirit be saying to you this morning? Where might our hearts need a a transplant? Or how do we ensure our hearts stay true to the living God? You see, there's no point if we just keep this book abstract. We've got to bring it into the reality of our lives. And so I asked the Holy Spirit that question this week in my own life. And I said, how on earth do we make this real? And I was prompted by him to return to last week's collect for the third Sunday before Lent. Hopefully you got one of these when you came in. Just look at it with me. 
You see, it says these words, doesn't it? Almighty God, who alone can bring order to the unruly wills and passions of sinful humanity, give your people grace. So to love what you command and to desire what you promise, that among the many changes of this world, our hearts may surely there be fixed, where true joys are to be found through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You see, that was Israel's problem, wasn't it, in a nutshell? In the words of that prayer, they didn't love what God commanded. They didn't desire what God promised. And their hearts weren't fixed where true joys are to be found. And in this prayer, as I kept reading it this week and I kept looking at it, we're asking God for one thing. Just one thing. And if you like, this is if you like the one thing that we need in all of our lives to combat idolatry. Give your people grace. You see, grace is what that living encounter with God is, isn't it? It's grace that says in the, in the word of the hymn, wasn't it? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I see. And so on from there. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Or who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. I'm a child of God. You see, it's grace. Grace in each of our lives that is the antidote to idolatry. It's grace, isn't it? C.S. Lewis said it, didn't he? It's grace that separates Christianity from every other belief system out there. The formal ones that have been around for the centuries to the ones we kind of just make up in our hearts today. And if we were to look through the pages of the New Testament, we find grace is so big, it's almost overwhelming, isn't it? It brings abundantly way more than we ever need. And irrespective of our worth, it brings freedom and justification. It brings eternal life and sanctification. It brings reconciliation and blessing. What did Paul say in the book of Colossians? It raises us up and seats us with Christ. It brings forgiveness. It brings peace with God. It's grace that's truly transformative. It's the unleashing, isn't it, of God's power in all of our lives to change sinners into saints. It says, I am in Christ. And it's grace which connects us with this God of love and holiness. And the longer we stay in his presence, the more we become transformed by his presence that we just want to give back to him in worship and surrender. You see, it's only by grace that our hearts will be transformed in the words of the prayer to love what you command, to desire what you promise. And then our hearts will be fixed where true joys are to be found. So if you like the take home from today, it's, it's quite simple. To take the prayer. To use it each day in our lives, even when we fail. Because by praying it, we prevent idols from corrupting our hearts as our hearts are transformed by grace. So normally, I would just finish now with a prayer. But why don't we today pray this prayer together? Almighty God, who alone can bring order 
to the unruly wills and passions of sinful humanity. Give your people grace, so to love what you command and to desire what you promise, that among the many changes of this world, our hearts may surely there be fixed, where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.